This is Simulcast, a high-fidelity podcast about healthcare simulation. Welcome to our latest Advances in Simulation collaboration episode, What's in a Name? This episode is a bit of a flip script with me, Jesse Spur, stepping in as Victoria Brazel will be taking the hot seat as guest. We're also thrilled to have Glenn Posner with us to discuss two recent articles which they have respectively published in Advances in Simulation. So, on to introing our guests. Um, Like many simulationists, Glenn wears far too many hats to do justice in an intro. But in short, Glenn's the Medical Director of the University of Ottawa Skills and Simulation Centre and the Ottawa Hospital Simulation Patient Safety Program. He's also, and probably for this, uh, most importantly, um, a busy obstetrician and gynaecologist and and also an associate professor at the University of Ottawa and Ottawa Hospital. Welcome, Glenn. Hello from Ottawa. Victoria Brazel is no stranger to our listeners. Most pertinently for this episode, though, Vic is uh, is a professor with Bond University, a practicing emergency physician and lead for the Gold Coast University Hospital Simulation Service. Hi, Vic. Hey, Jesse, nice to be on. As you said, is a flipped script. Sounds interesting. So um, in keeping with the, the style of the Advances in Simulation collaboration episodes, we take a look at recent publication or publications in this case from that said journal. And these are all available free and open access via the website and we'll have links in the show notes. So the articles for discussion today uh, were both published in the second half of 2017. The first of which is Glenn's article, Simulation in the Clinical Setting Towards a Standard Lexicon. And that's uh, and Glenn's co-conspirators on that one were Marsha Clark and Vincent Grant. The second article is Translational Simulation, Not Where But Why, A Functional View of situ simulation and that's by Victoria Brazel. Now these two articles strike me a little like twins that were separated at birth um, coming from similar genetic or the same genetic material influenced mainly by environment and context in terms of the differences that you guys approach in the articles. Essentially each of them seems to have started from a place of recognizing that with the proliferation of healthcare simulation in particular more recently what we often call in situ simulation um, it's found us in a place where current descriptors are often a bit clunky and prone to misinterpretation and maybe incorrectly used so uh, first of all i was really interested to dive into can you tell us why this is a is a problem and and should we be interested or is it just really semantics so Vic, I might um, pass to you first to see if you can sort of briefly explain to us some of the problems with terminology and simulation. Sure, Jesse. So I agree. I think the starting point for me with this was that I very much shared the enthusiasm for what we were calling and still call in situ simulation. But I had become a bit frustrated with the very dichotomous discussion that was going on and this blind kind of, oh, this is better or this is worse, uh, labs aren't as good. And I think it sort of refers back to that article we did even in our first episode of Simulcast on Dave Garber's future vision of healthcare simulation and this idea about, hang on, the first dimension is what are we trying to achieve, not where are we trying to achieve it. So for me, I think the necessity to think hard about terminology was because I think it was confusing something much more important, which was what are we trying to achieve? And I was seeing a lot of my colleagues really 
twisting themselves around to do in situ simulation because that is very resource intensive, both for the people running it and the system in which it's being conducted. And sometimes that was unnecessary, I thought, given what it was they were trying to achieve. But sometimes that was hard to discern because it wasn't clear to us what we were trying to achieve. And we hadn't thought hard enough about the scope of those objectives. So I think uh, that was the background for me. And I thought, well, what we need is both some terminology, but also just a refocus on this is what we're trying to do and this is the right place to do it and this is the right modality to use. And uh, probably so you could stop having to be on panels discussing whether InSitu or SimLab is the best. Yep, there was certainly a lot of that. And, you know, uh, Glenn would know this too. There were papers appearing in the literature that were randomised control trials of one versus another and uh, I thought, well, that's really not the kind of examination that we need of this issue. And Glenn, have you got some some insights to add to that? Yeah, so I came at this problem from a slightly different uh, point of view. Uh, since 2014, I've had the pleasure of running the Insight to Sim program for my hospital, which is a large academic health science center in Canada. And one of the best parts of my new job is that I, um, I get invited to share what I've learned and my experiences across the country and internationally. I think people call me when Victoria's speaking calendar is full. Anyhow, I was a visiting professor in Calgary last year, and I was vis- invited to sit in on an Insight to Sim one morning. So I'm sitting there, and the team's filing into the room for their pre-briefing. And I am looking at uh, the room where we're going to do the sim. And I had this epiphany that what I'm watching is not what I am calling Insight to Sim and what I'm talking about. These people that are filing in and are, are, are participating, they're not working today. They've come in on their day off. They're using a room near where actual patients are uh, delivering. Uh, this is in the labor and delivery ward. But they're not in an actual patient room and they're not, actu- they're not actually using real hospital equipment. At one point during the simulation, the bed uh, didn't go up properly or didn't the bottom of the bed didn't come off properly. And I got excited that they had discovered a latent safety threat. And then I realized that they were using this bed because it was broken. So the session was extremely valuable as an educational intervention, but there was no element of auditing the system that I had come to love. So I realized that the term in situ is being used differently by different people to describe simulation that's happening away from the sim center. And as you can see, my co-authors on the paper are both from Calgary. So you can see that this idea was turning over in my brain over the ensuing days. And I had lunch with Vince and Marcia drove me to the airport. And we are, we basically hashed out this lexicon that we are advocating for. So quite a, a serendipitous sort of reverie, I guess, of just... Reverie. Good yes. Yeah, putting a face on a problem that you'd probably felt for a while. Um, I, I guess that, that's familiar to my experiences as well, is I've actually started seeing more and more bays or rooms being dedicated to the, in inverted commas, the in situ sim room, which, uh, like you said, hasn't really mirrored my experience of doing running simulation with real equipment uh, within real workloads and and that I think nicely putting at the audit component of it that is quite powerful. So uh, that's that's a great start. So this isn't just a an issue with vocab. It seems like there's actually some guide to function on this as well. So with a problem sort of established, um, what's the solutions? What what is a general elevator pitch for the solutions that you proposed through your paper, Glenn? So you know, I think that. Uh, Victoria is onto something, and I'll definitely endeavor to incorporate uh, some of her terminology into my life. 
But I think it also highlights that we function on a different plane of existence. Victoria is working at this leading edge of simulation, pushing the boundaries, changing the world. And I'm just this practical guy trying to accurately describe what I'm seeing around me so that everybody's on the same page. And I think that what I'm advocating for is that is is well um, laid out in a figure in our paper that describes our proposed solution, which is to describe simulation that you're running in the clinical setting based on the overall goals and objectives of the session. If your target audience is the team that's working today and you're in a real room using real equipment and there's an opportunity to audit uh, the system or diagnose a problem with the system, um, while we're engaging in interprofessional education, then for me, that's what I want to call, quote unquote, insight you sim. But if this is a group of people who are not working today and we're at the hospital, but this room will never see a patient and we have dedicated equipment for the sim, then your objectives are nearly the same as they are at the sim center. It's just more convenient for your participants to get there uh, or um, maybe you don't have a dedicated sim space at your institution. And you know, I want to be really clear that I'm not trying to sound judgmental, as my reviewer too pointed out. Um, I'm not trying to say that you're not seizing the opportunity to diagnose a system problems and that you're a lesser form of educational activity. I just want us to describe things accurately. Uh, and then, as you see in our diagram, we go on to describe these subtypes of insight to sim that deal with the element of surprise and these special cases of just-in-time uh, training and uh, what we termed anticipatory simulation that we can talk about later. Yeah, I'm really interested to kind of get uh, some uh, go into sort of the vignettes that you present in in the article shortly. So, um, Victoria, can you just give us a little bit of an elevator pitch for um, for translational simulation and how how that addresses this problem of terminology? Uh, yes, well, I'm not sure that I'm quite living up to Glenn's glowing reference of being at the leading edge. Uh, for me, this is also pretty practical, but my elevator pitch would be that. We have to be really disciplined about what we're trying to achieve when we have, whether it's a simulation program or even a single simulation activity. And I think with simulation and the many modalities we have at our disposal now, we can do almost anything, but we certainly can't do everything at once. So I think, in fact, almost this is a first step to then what Glenn is describing. So having decided whether what you're trying to achieve is team training, individual skill enhancement, or identification of latent safety threats, or working on culture in an organisation, then you take that next step and think, well, can we do it on-site simulation in a room near the ED because then we get everybody together, or do we have to do it in our resus bay because it's so vital to identifying latent safety threats? So it's a pretty simple elevator pitch. Think about what you're trying to do and don't make it too much at once. That sounds absolutely great. So we're we're really starting from a place of function rather than um, location or equipment or anything. And I I've just noticed that uh, there's another term that's been notably absent from either of your descriptions, and that's uh, fidelity. Uh, I'm happy to pop in here. Yes, I agree. I, I think it's and Glenn makes reference to this in his paper is that often people are pursuing realistic environments for training. And I think, unfortunately, that might make 
in situ environments still over-specified if just individual education is what we're after. Uh, although it will be more realistic, we may well have gone too far on that dimension for the cost that it's going to be in terms of impact on our health service and on the real patients. So uh, physical realism, functional task alignment, I think these are all relevant to the modality that you choose once you know what you're trying to achieve uh, because there's no doubt inside you offers lots of realism and I guess what people might have called fidelity. But uh, just as all the commentators on fidelity say, it depends what kind of fidelity do you need. Do you need the simple team fidelity of having people there who need to talk about these issues together, i.e. your actual doctors and nurses who work together on the floor and or other health professions involved? Or is it that you actually need the physical environmental fidelity? Um, or is it that you need the task challenge environmental fidelity of uh, a particular time of day or a particular patient condition? So I think it's very relevant. Uh, but yes, we know the inadequacies of the term. And um, to be honest, Jesse, you've gone a bit of a hobby horse about this. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep flogging that hobby horse until it's dead. Um, no, I, I, I think I really appreciate that sort of explanation and um, and that can really help because I think that's one of the things that's probably, like you said, Vic, led people down the Insight best pathway is this um, fairly tireless pursuit of fidelity at all costs. We'd love to hear from you. Contact or comment at simulationpodcast.com. We've started off at a bit of a theoretical and a functional level, and it would be really great to dive into some practical examples. And Glenn, there's a you give a couple of really nice vignette um, examples in the article about on-site versus in situ, and we might might start to just tease that out a bit more. If you are happy to run us through an example of um, sort of the same sort of scenario that may and how that may look like on-site versus actually in situ, and some of the different learning objectives that you might have set for each of those styles. And then we'll move up your, I guess, hierarchy of definitions as we go and explore a, a little bit more about um, anticipatory and uh, just-in-time simulation as well because I'm really, really interested particularly to, to dive a little more into this concept of anticipatory sim as well. So, um, Glenn, can you just take us through a couple of examples at first case of in situ versus on site? Well, the example I give in the article is about, um, is again, based on experience I had in Calgary, where there's a group of emergency uh, physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists. And I described two cases, one where an emergency department decides that, that they want to have some simulation training and they um, go to an unused uh, bay of the emergency department and they run a simulation with the actual with an, not the actual team that's working today but a team that comes in on their on their day off a, a group some people observe some people are the active participants there's a bit of a pre-briefing and they're in their own emergency department they're using they are using some of their own equipment but when they call um, for help from a consultant they have a confederate con consultant that uh so as not to bother a real consultant. And um, they come down, manage the patient together with the team. The team then retreats to a conference room and debriefs this, the scenario. And really, that's what I'm describing as on-site simulation because super convenient for the team. They don't have to travel to a simulation center. They're, they're all people who would typically work together, so there's some benefits there. But it's really about team training. And it's really about learning crisis resource management together and learning together as a team, 
breaking down hierarchy, a lot of excellent things that you can learn during an on-site simulation. But then, again, I'm not trying to be judgmental, like the next example is the, is the be-all, end-all, but in this, this, you can do the same thing with an in-situ simulation where it's more inconvenient to disturb the emergency department, but you can uh, take the real team that's working today, maybe get um, some nurses to backfill the emergency room so that um, some nurses are freed up to participate in the simulation, have real emergency physicians volunteer to be part of the simulation, and run a simulation where you actually call a real consultant. Maybe they're warned in advance, maybe they're not, but a real consultant comes down to help manage the case. Uh, maybe you call the real blood blank to see how fast you can get blood during a trauma. You're actually assessing uh, or auditing the system. How fast does a consultant come? How fast does help arrive? How fast does blood get to that to that area? So you're doing the same team training. You're still talking about crisis resource management, but you're also diagnosing system problems. And that is what I'm calling insight to simulation. That's a really great example and um, really nicely captures the way you've, you've separated it in the paper. And I think gives a great segue to start to move across to look at this concept of translational simulation that's presented by, by Victoria. Because it strikes me that the offsite or even the, the SimLab-based based simulation, which is really grounded, like you said, in team training and it, it's coming from an educational point, the impact of that on patients is relied on a lot of assumptions. And this is a, a premise that you really sort of start and finish um, the translational simulation paper from Vic, that there's a lot of assumptions that by training healthcare teams and individuals that by proxy patient outcomes improve from that. And that's one of the burdens of proof that seems to get thrown back on simulation a lot Whereas the the use of a, of simulation in this integrated patient safety context perhaps makes it one a little easier to evaluate um, in terms of patient orientated and uh, and two a different concept to just purely educational. So can you talk us through a little bit about the the some practical examples of translational simulation as opposed to, say, just in-situ simulation for education purposes, Vic? Yeah, I think that frames it up nicely, Jesse. And I think it's not just it gets thrown back on us, but we often go asking for resources with this idea of, oh, we're helping patients and we're improving safety. And maybe we are, maybe we aren't. It is very difficult to demonstrate. And I think what I wanted to also recognize was that plenty of so-called lab-based simulation can be very closely targeted at patient outcomes. And the work that's been done in mastery learning and deliberate practice for things like central lines at uh, uh, in Chicago and uh, similar things, which are here's a very specific patient outcome and we are targeting it and we don't need to go near a real intensive care unit because the nature of our modality is focused on the skills and preventing the bacterial infections that might be associated with central line insertion. And those things we can train outside of the actual clinical environment. So I think I also wanted to sort of wave a little flag and say, you know what, these directly targeting patient outcomes don't have to happen in situ. There's no doubt that in situ allows those identification of latent safety threats and or the connections across department interfaces, as Glenn alluded to, that I also think can target patient outcomes. And it's a matter 
of how specific do we get that. And again, in the article, I make some reference to some great work from Bill McGahey's team and others around what are translational outcomes. So this isn't a new term. It's very well known to people who work in research about translational research, i.e. taking stuff from the bench to the bedside. And it's about recognising that uh you know, simulation for education's sake is also good, but just be aware that I don't think we can wrap stuff up and just say, oh, we taught our emergency registrars how to intubate better, so therefore our departmental educations are going better. Now, that might be a link, but it might not be. And probably the latter does rely on some elements of in-situ and on-site training and maybe also some off-site training because we think and we know that improving departmental intubation success and safety relies on some individual skills, some team skills, some uh, understanding and optimization of the environment, and some working with others in the clinical area who aren't in our immediate team. And so if you start to break down what it takes to achieve a translational outcome, you realize that most of those need a variety of these different formats of simulation to achieve. So uh, I guess it comes back to that sort of same point, which is be really clear on what you're trying to achieve and instead of looking for the ideal format to do it, recognise that there'll be a set of principles about how we match up our formats to our objectives. So I think to sort of come back to something that Glenn said, what does that mean to any of us? Certainly if you're a SIM program director, I think it gives you a sense of, oh, well, I need to think about all my activities and how they mesh together and what each one of them is trying to achieve. And I, I don't think our frameworks are the only ones. Um, I'd just do a little uh, call out to um, uh, Peter Weinstock and his group in Boston and their SIM zones model, which was published in Simulation Healthcare, I think, last year. Uh, there's lots of ways of thinking about this. But I do think this is also relevant for your average Joe clinician thinking, I want to do some great training that will improve my patient outcomes. Uh, and I think it comes back to, well, don't just copy someone else's format or think um, insights will be better, but rather think, what am I trying to do? What interfaces am I looking at? What educational or quality improvement outcomes have I got? And uh, how will I match up the right modality or modalities to achieve it? Very thorough overview. And I think, um, well, as I said before, we'll have links to each of these papers in, in the show notes, but I'd really encourage um, the listeners to jump on and actually have a look at the um, diagrams, the figures that both Glenn and Victoria, you guys have presented around the, the concepts that you're talking about. Because one of the things that really stood out to me, and this has been, some, a, I, I guess, a mental model I've had for in situ simulation for some time, is this concept, Vic, in your translational simulation models of diagnostic simulation and then the simulation intervention and thinking really carefully about those two as separate entities. But there will be times when both can, I guess, occur in parallel. Can we um, maybe talk about an example of a translational simulation? And the one that's springing to my mind that I observed slash had some peripheral involvement with you was um, the stroke simulation. Is that an example that you're happy to kind of run through at a high level just to give an example of a translational simulation and those diagnostic and interventional components? Yeah, and I think just to sort of uh, preface that, you're right, I think 
sometimes you are finding out things about the system. And of course, you're also trying to educate people. But in fact, just this week, I was at another hospital and someone said they'd run this inside you sim to identify threats. But everyone was so anxious because they were having to perform themselves and they were trying to achieve both the educational aims and the diagnostic ones. And I think they're going to roll back a little bit from there. Uh, but to take your example, yeah, we were doing a simulation that was really about trying to embed and explore the systems that we had at the hospital for getting someone to interventional radiology for clot retrieval um, in those subset of stroke patients who are amenable to it. And this is a sort of classic departmental interface challenge where you've got ambulance services, emergency department, neurology team, radiology team, as well as interventional radiology team. So it's a sort of classic setup of complexity that needs sort of exploration and understanding before you can do too much in the way of uh, fixing or, and we didn't, I think the other thing to say is we didn't have a massive problem because I think you can't really use SIM if there's huge issues. I think you can use it when people want to improve and they've got a few ideas and it's a series of experiments about how to. So our in situ simulation did run from essentially pre-hospital to the interventional radiology suite taking a patient who was appropriate for a clot retrieval. And to use Glenn's terminology, it was in situ, but it was definitely planned and people knew it was going to happen and what was going to happen. And so uh, we kind of went through that. And in terms of, say, both the process and the debrief, uh, there's no doubt that the individuals involved are getting a little sense of, ah, oh, is that why we do this? And some educational uh, outcomes for themselves and possibly had even achieved those before we did the sim because anyone in their right mind is thinking, I might just refresh my memory about which patients are candidates for clot retrieval if I'm going to be involved in this sim. Uh, but I think our majority on that side was swung more towards diagnostics because what we were trying to find is how did our communication systems work? Uh, what did people expect to know as they were getting calls versus um, as they were uh, having to manage the patient in real time? Was it appropriate for the patient to go direct from CT up to interventional radiology? How did we and at what point did we call anaesthetics to be providing the um, sedation or general anaesthesia for the procedure upstairs? So that is a good example. And I think you would find that people had those educational outcomes, but in no way, shape or form were they the primary aim. The primary aim was exploration of the process. And if there was a intervention, it was probably more about these groups of people coming together and just getting to know who they were and uh, forming some more of a sense of um, bond across those departmental interfaces. And I suppose just to add one more component to that is that's all wrapped up in the absolute gold um, situation of uh, this is a health service priority for the particular health, uh, the context that it was being done in as well. So there's there's already a sense of urgency created around it for this and also a desire to um, have some evaluation outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, that's probably, if anything, personally been one of my challenges is trying to get direction from those in the health service about what is important because at the coalface, and I guess this is towards the end of my article, I think it's pretty easy for me as an emergency physician to go, oh, these are the itches that we need scratched. We need to work on X, Y, or Z in our department. But to actually go to the higher levels in the organisation, I thought this would be easier than it was and go to patient safety and go to critical incident committees and say, can you give me a little sense of what you want us to work on? I, I have found that surprisingly hard to discern from health service leadership, but uh, I keep trying. Mm -hmm. 
Simulcast. So, Glenn, I might um, get your help in actually shrinking this back down a little bit to looking at something that can be applied coming in and running a simulation tomorrow in your own department. I really like the framework of one, differentiating your in situ simulation versus on site, and then looking down our branching flow diagram that's really nice and fairly self evident in your article, Glenn. This concept arises of expected versus unexpected. So, unexpected being very audit focused. And then in the expected arm, I'm, I'm really interested in the two types of simulation that you kind of propose there of the just in time and the anticipatory. Could you give me a couple of examples of those? Sure. So, I want to preface this by saying that I actually haven't done this myself, but I've heard of it done, being done very well, especially in Calgary. Just-in-time training means you are about to do something. So it's all about the needs assessment. And if you are about to do a very complicated operation that is done very rarely, we're talking about a surgical team that actually goes into the operating room together the day before or the morning of a very complicated procedure. And actually, you know, it's almost a choreographed dance of, Where is everybody going to stand? How are we going to have, I mean, maybe it's a very complicated uh, delivery where there's a um, cesarean section being done and a pediatric team that has to resuscitate a baby. Maybe everybody is going to be very crowded in that operating room. And let's let's run through something that is actually going to happen. So when I say just in time, I mean not something that might happen someday, not something that might happen tonight, but something that's going to happen today or tomorrow. Let's practice it right now so that we're all on the same page, so that the choreography is perfect, so that uh, you know we're a well-oiled machine, and then we're going to do it tomorrow. On the flip side, this idea of an anticipatory simulation is not about what's going to happen tomorrow, but what what's the worst thing that might happen tonight? Let's look around this ward. We're doing sign over. It's five o'clock. Everybody's going home. Who's the sickest patient on this ward? What is the worst thing that can happen? We have a few minutes. It's, you know, 445. We're signing over. Let's practice. You know, we have a very sick patient. They, they might have uh, an upper GI bleed. They might have, you know, this might be a sick pediatric patient, as the case that they were telling me about in Calgary, where uh, CPR might be challenging in, in this particular patient. Why don't we practice? Let's go into a separate room. Let's grab a mannequin and let's practice something that might happen tonight. So let's anticipate so that the team can kind of rest assured that they have done some mental rehearsal of what might actually happen uh, this evening uh, overnight on call tonight. And that's what I mean by anticipatory. We're anticipating what's the worst thing that might happen tonight, and let's uh, practice for that. That's a, a great couple of examples, and shrunken down to almost uh, even just a skills and drills training level. Um, this is something we do wherever possible, and after our resus team huddles in the morning, may go through say an RSI drill with the team, very much in the concept of anticipation. So bringing that that team together, knowing what the roles are going to be, and actually creating a little bit of a framework for inexperienced team members for the case that may come during the rest of the shift. So that's a great example. Yeah, that's happened to me a few times. I run a sim in the morning and the same thing happened in the afternoon. It's happened to me with a code blue in the hemodialysis unit. It's happened to me with a, believe it or not, um, you know, perimortem cesarean section in the emergency department. And 
nothing gets buy-in for a program like uh, something like that happening. So thanks for serving up a nice segue for me for buy-in for a program. And I guess buy-in for doing this stuff on an ongoing basis can be challenging. Um, How do we maximize the outputs beyond just the bodies that were in the room, so to say, on uh, for, for a given scenario. Now, I know, Vic, um, you touch on this towards the end of your article about how this is reported back and fed back into the machine. And I'm re- interested if you mind spending a couple of minutes expanding on Yes, well, of course, that's also a self-serving question because it started with you, Jesse, um, sending me your post-simulation report form that you were doing at the Royal Brisbane at that time and then we adapted that so that after the true in situ sims that we run that are large scale that involve many departments, we have a, a one or two page reporting form where we go through what went well, uh, what were the issues identified uh, with a focus on the latent safety threats, but also if we do discover any knowledge gaps, although I have to say that is rare, that then need um, educational interventions. And we send that to service leadership as well as those people who were involved. Recently, we've taken to, in the um, world of everyone doing visual apps and infographics, we now do a short form version of that, which is either a single PowerPoint slide or Canva slide, which just has key learning points that we put up around the department if we feel like there's three or four just very simple take-home messages that we think were highlighted during the simulation. So I think we've got a couple of outputs from that. We also do run um, what by Glenn's terminology is an on-site simulation where it's more about the team and the educational outcomes for our registrars and nursing staff once a week and we do the same thing where we have the sort of infographic output that we send then to all the staff because I agree despite our best efforts the people, if the impact of the sim is restricted to the people involved, unfortunately, for most of our departments, um, we're not going to get the outcome we want. But if we can both disseminate the messages, but more important, I think the cultural norm of reflecting on our practice and thinking hard about our interfaces and what we do, then I think we're starting to achieve uh, something a little bit more systematic and, and long term. And Glenn, have um, have you got any similar or different approaches to, I guess, disseminating or integrating outcomes from in situ or on-site simulation back into the um, into the patient safety or educational fibre of the hospital? Yeah, so I have the ability to record as if it was an adverse outcome or a near miss into our patient safety um, computerized system. And I have a drop-down menu that says this was a simulated event rather than a real event. And in that way, the loop will get closed on the latent safety threats that I that I identify. I'm taking notes, of course, as we're talking, and I love the idea of disseminating back to uh, the unit the lessons that were learned. And I have uh, not done as good a job with that as I would like to. So thank you for the inspiration. Focus on looking at the latent safety threats, and and this has definitely been an evolving sort of thought process for me as I've read more about safety too, and and our previous one of our previous episodes and advances episodes actually it's a good plug for that the learning from success episode with Mary Patterson and Peter Diekman that you recorded Vic. One of the things that can get lost a lot in this concept of audit is actually the 
the learning from success and I think that's something I really like to include in our post scenario reports is why did things go well? I agree just to be just as rigorous in the examination of uh, good outcomes or even in highly skilled workarounds in the face of uh, things not going right initially and I think you're right uh, Peter Diekman and Mary Patterson have definitely influenced my thinking as has the whole safety two concept uh, and it's sitting a lot better than just being asked as a simulation person to read a root cause analysis and go off and educate people on something uh, instead to get a little bit more granular and sophisticated about really examining uh, what are the resources that we've got to deal with things when they don't go right because um, we have a lot of successful strategies and skills and let's rigorously examine those. So we might um, draw things to a conclusion there, but really in summary, I think, and this won't be need a lot of convincing to people that are interested in in simulation and learning through conversation, that vocabulary and terminology is important because it's um, it gives clarity around what we're trying to achieve. So with that probably oversimplistic summary, I'd like to thank Victoria and Glenn for your time and hope we've done your papers justice. Thanks so much, Jesse. It's been a great pleasure and so nice to chat with Gwen and uh, maybe we'll be in Calgary at the same time soon and we can both be in some insight you sim and I'm refusing to be the Australian grandmother as my Danish friends made me. Thanks Jesse this was an amazing experience great to talk with you guys. Connect with us at sim underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs>